I'm very thankful for the opportunity this morning to start a new series together. And as we do that, just let me um, say before we dive in, if you didn't get a chance to get one of these, this is ESV Scripture Journal, the book of Ephesians. They are outside um, on the table. There's a handful of them left. Our intention is for everyone to get one, right? Because this is a great tool for us as we preach through Ephesians for uh, people to take notes, to write out questions that they have for the Q&A following the service, you know? This is an, uh, to write out questions that you have, like we have an unfiltered conversation coming up on Thursday where we meet at, I think, Headflyer, and we're going to talk about any questions that people have, right? This is a great chance to write some of those things out, and then when we come together for that time, you'll be, wait, you know, you'll be ready to go. Um, we, we sprung for like the the more like creative edition this time, the fancy cover with the sword and the gold. And um, you'll see that on the side of a lot of these pages, like if you open up to Ephesians chapter 1 where we are today, on the side, Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Like that's my text for Good Friday, right? So it highlights these texts that we'll be working through together. So I encourage you to get one and spend some time thinking through questions, writing out notes, writing out thoughts that you have as you engage with the scriptures. Also, I encourage you to connect with another believer during the week, you know, and we're going to talk about that, but talk through this with one another. I think it's very important. You know, you could, you could use a BIC or a, you know, a paper mate, I suppose, if you wanted to. I'm not going to judge your pen choice, but um, these, this is like nice, thick, marble-colored paper. Invest in like a, at least a Pilot G2 or something like that. Okay. Um, Let's pray, though. It's neither here nor there. We need to pray. Lord, we invite your spirit to be active among us. This morning, we we ask that you would do this morning what we can't do, that you'd reveal truth to our hearts, that you'd point us to Jesus, that you'd help us to know you more, that you'd help us to know the good news that stands at the heart of the, the scriptures. You'd help us to see this morning the way in which that changes us, why this matters. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's always interesting. It's always interesting to see how different generations see and approach same issues, same topics, very differently, right? I mean, you can see this in a, in a variety of ways. You can, see this, you can see this in like polling data, where you can explore a certain issue, a certain topic, and see how each generation deals with it differently. But more than that, I think it's interesting to see how society's view collectively on a topic can change or evolve over even a very short period of time in a collective kind of way, even just like two to three decades. And the way we view something is entirely different. And it actually happens like this. Like um, one of the clearest examples to me of this kind of change is the kind of questions that skeptics tend to ask about Christianity. So even when I was still in high school, right, um, during my first year in college, which I used to say, which was only X amount of years ago, but now every year that goes by, people's eyebrows kind of raise, like, can you really get away saying only, right? So 23 years ago, all right, I was in high school. Um, but, you know, it's relatively speaking, that's a short amount of time. So only 23 years ago, the kinds of objections that skeptics would place on Christianity were in some ways altogether different than they are now. And what I mean is, at least here in the U.S., like, when I was in high school, I don't remember people arguing about whether or not the ethics or morals that the Bible taught were good. In fact, it was the opposite, quite the opposite. It was kind of assumed. It was assumed by the school faculty. It was kind of a Judeo-Christian ethic, though they didn't call it that that was ascribed to by the faculty. It was kind of assumed even by uh, the, the most atheistic students. The, the objection mostly wasn't that it was immoral. The objection was that it wasn't true. So get your judgmental moral teachings out of my face because what you believe isn't true anyways. That was the idea. Like the general toner idea when I was in high school was like, yeah, I mean, I know I'm doing bad things. I know I'm rebelling. Like I'm a rebel. It's who I am. It's what I'm doing. Like I know maybe this isn't a good thing to do, but who are you to tell me to stop? Because all you believe is a bunch of hocus pocus, you know, fairy tale stuff anyways. That was what I heard a lot of. And so the main objection to Christianity wasn't that it failed morally. It wasn't that it was morally suspect, but rather that it, it, uh, it wasn't true. People would primarily object to its truthfulness rather than its goodness. Now, fast forward 
20 years. The landscape looks totally different. I mean, it looks different from when I first started in in full-time ministry. It looks totally different. I mean, not entirely different. Of course, people still question the truthfulness of Christianity. It's not like now they assume the truthfulness but question the goodness. No, it's like the reason for questioning the truth of Christianity now at least as far as the West is concerned, especially from the emerging generation, is um, a question about its goodness. The primary objection to Christianity now appears to have shifted to whether or not it's moral. Is it good? Does it work? And the way surrounding culture has very quickly shifted is to declare, actually, that what the Bible teaches in many cases is, is immoral. All right, now, some of the reason for that is just a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. Justin's um, illustration from the West Wing a couple weeks ago was a really good illustration of that. I invite you to go back and listen. Sometimes there's just a misunderstanding, culturally speaking, of Christian doctrine, right? Okay. Um, But some of this is actually a direct challenge to what the Scriptures actually do tell us. You know, what Scripture actually clearly says. It's not good it, 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 it's, it's immoral, the claim is. And, and therefore, because it's not good, how could it be in any sense true? All right? How could this be right? How could this be true? There's like a new moral majority 20, 20, 30 years ago. The moral majority in America were Christians, typically in influential positions who were trying to like cultivate Judeo-Christian ethics in the culture, and they were known as the moral majority. Now the new moral majority comes from the secular side of things, where it's like a declaration of, you know, using social media platforms and other things to kind of like declare this is immoral. And oftentimes what's declared as immoral is Christian doctrine, and therefore it's not true. Okay, in some ways, I really get this. Like, it actually makes sense. It was Anselm, actually, who argued originally that if God exists, he's maximally great. He's a maximally great being. And if a maximally great being exists, by definition, he wouldn't be inferior to anyone or anything else in any way. Otherwise, we couldn't call him God. We couldn't call him maximally great. So if he's morally, if, if God, or the one claiming to be God, is morally inferior to us, if he's just like on a journey and we kind of have to help God grow morally, then he's not God. He's a being like the rest of us who are growing and developing, right? Um, and I think that's, that's the case. If what the scriptures teach is truly morally bankrupt, how could it be true? Like, the logic holds up in that sense. I'd argue that if a religious system is immoral, if its doctrine is evil, if its doctrine is corrupt, then of course it won't be true. Like, and, and we see, by the way, religious systems that are broken and evil in many different ways. So then the question is, what's the problem with approaching Christianity in that way? Approaching the Bible, approaching Christian doctrine. Let me give you two problems with it. Both of them point to why we're going to be in Ephesians for a significant period of time moving forward. Okay. Two problems. First, who gets to decide? Like, who gets to decide what's evil and good? Who gets to decide what's moral and immoral? Like, how, you, how do you define good and evil? These are important questions. They're questions of definition. And actually, most of the places where we see conflict in Western culture right now are revolving around arguments about definitions. These are important questions. They're definitional questions. Like from, from generation to generation, even from year to year, the cultural leaning on an issue could totally shift because the definition could totally shift, right? It has and it does all the time. So, so that highlights the problem. And the problem with it is this. Why would we trust our current cultural leaning related to what's good or bad which is a, always just for a very short period of time and is always exposed later in history to have so many shortcomings, right? We always look back and say, ooh, that was probably not great. So why would we trust our current cultural leaning, which is so temporary, to define what is good and evil rather than foundation documents that have lasted thousands of years that are, in a way, much more testable as it relates to whether or not this is true, whether or not this is good, So that's one problem. The second problem is that when the Bible is explored, we actually find what we saw two weeks ago at the end of Revelation, which is, uh, if you follow, actually last week, if you follow your heart into worship, it will likely lead you into false worship. 
Like, your heart should be active in worship. It, sh- it should be. We should have emotion in our worship. But if your heart is what leads you into what you worship, if you follow your heart and what you want at the front end before you, you know, ask whether or not it's true, it'll lead you into false worship. Instead, we follow truth into worship. We get the order wrong, as I said last week, when we follow our hearts. So God proclaims the gospel. By God's spirit, we come to know it's truth. And then on that account, like it stirs us to new desires, worship, affection for God based on the truth of who he is. So all that to say, the same thing applies here. Before we ask whether or not something is good, using standards and definitions that I promise you are always temporary and rely on a cultural moment. And you know, in your cultural moment, it's so easy to be like, well, my definition's true. I got the other definitions prior to mine. My parents, my grandparents, they were dumb. Mine's the right one, Right? so easy to have that kind of mindset. But it's like, before we ask whether it's good using those standards and definitions that are temporary, that change, that I promise you will change again, we should ask, is this true? You know? And yet, it's not the truth about God at the expense of what's good. It's not. Okay, so it's truth about God that enables all goodness. And, and that's one of the many reasons that the book of Ephesians is so important for us right now. Like, the book of Ephesians, relevant throughout the ages. The book of Ephesians, especially timely and relevant for our church now, because it has a lot to say to a world that increasingly won't be bothered by truth claims. It affirms the reality that truth is important, specifically truth about what, who God is and what he's done. Truth about the gospel. The good news at the heart of of the scriptures, right? Truth about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. So if you, you know, if you look at the first three chapters in Ephesians, first three chapters, as as far as I could tell, reading it several times the last few weeks, I could only find one verb about, in those first three chapters, about what you need to do. All of the rest of the verbs in these first three chapters are what has already been done for, for us. They're proclamations of truth. They're truth claims, right? That then lead us into what we should do later on, and we're going to have more to say about that, right? Um, But it doesn't, you know, it's not truth that sacrifices goodness. Rather, it shows us the way that this truth is for our good. It brings about goodness in the life of the believer. That's what you get when you get to chapter 4. It leads, it, it leads to a kind of love that our world badly needs during this time. The love of God, the love of Christ. It's a major theme throughout, Revela- throughout Ephesians. I'm probably going to say Revelation a few times. So um, bear with me in love. Uh, believers are called to imitate God in Ephesians. They're called to do that by living a life of love, imitating God's love in the gospel. And in fact, as it's said often, you know, Other than 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians has more references per page to love, or at least believers walking in love, than anywhere else in Paul's letters. And there's a reason for that. We're actually going to see it this morning. So here we find an appeal to truth. Paul's appeal to this truth, but it's an an appeal to life-changing truth. It's an appeal to truth that changes us. And we'll see these sharp contrasts throughout the book where Paul highlights this. Sharp contrasts linking our, or, or between our former way of life and our life right now as believers, right? And Paul uses this once now formula to talk through these contrasts. Once we were dead in our trans, trans, uh, trespasses and sins, but now God has made us alive. Once we were Gentiles in the flesh, once we were far off, but now he has brought us near right? Once we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. And then Paul uses these contrasts to say, like, look, if that's true, if that's the nature of, like, who you once were and who you now are, they should change the way you live. So he says, Ephesians 5, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, therefore walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So this book gives us yet another glimpse into how the Bible describes Christian growth. Ephesians is a book about discipleship. It is about Christian growth. It's about helping one another grow. And we'll see that really clearly this morning. So set your eyes with me. If you have your scripture journals or your Bibles, have them open. Set your eyes with me at the first four verses of the text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from 
God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this morning, okay, four verses that answer five questions. That's the outline. That's how we're dividing this up. Four verses that answer five questions. And these five questions are going to help us understand more God's heart for how we grow, how as believers we make progress in the faith. So we're going to answer the questions, who, where, what, why, and how? Okay, who? Who's writing Ephesians? We'll see why it matters too. Who's writing Ephesians? Where? Where is he directing it? You know, who's he writing to? So who's writing Ephesians? Where is he directing it? What is Ephesians? What is it? What's its content? Sure, but what is Ephesians? Fourth, why? Like, why is he writing this? What's the occasion? And then finally, how? How can believers follow these instructions? And if you didn't get a chance to write all that down, I'm going back through each one. So let's start. Four verses that answer five questions, helping us see the purpose and importance of Ephesians and understand, like, how do Christians grow? The nature of Christian growth. Okay, so first let's look at who. Who is writing Ephesians? First part of verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Pretty straightforward. Who's writing? (laughs) The apostle Paul. This, though, if you don't have any background in Christianity, you know, if this is the first time you've opened the Bible, or or one of the first times, and you're like, I don't really know anything about the apostle Paul. That's okay. This This is the apostle Paul who at one point in time, he was a Jewish um, Pharisee who persecuted the church in Jerusalem and surrounded region, surrounding regions. So Paul was once known as Saul, and he hunted Christians down at one point to imprison or kill them, especially the most outspoken ones. And yet here he is as the apostle who would perhaps be the most vocal of all, penning more letters, more epistles in the New Testament than any other New Testament author, Pen- penning several to churches, raising up church planters and sending them, sending a couple of pastoral letters, sending letters from being imprisoned. He he, uh, gave up everything. You know, we could say that Paul probably could have lived a life of relative comfort. He He certainly had that at his disposal. He was a Roman citizen who was a Jewish Pharisee. So relatively speaking, he could have lived quite well. He gave this up. And not only so, but like he endured beatings to within an inch of his life. He was shipwrecked imprisoned multiple times, lands in Rome and is, is um, executed for his faith. He dies for his faith. So, so what happened? What happened to Paul? Well, he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And that changes everything for Paul. Like, it's hard to explain how someone's entire life trajectory could be changed in this way. You know, like the way that I just described. That's difficult to, to account for. We'll come back to it in a couple of weeks, but New Testament scholar Daryl Bach comments a little bit about what could have possibly happened to transform a persecutor like Saul into someone who followed Jesus, the Apostle Paul. So he says, I guarantee you, if there'd been a corpse in a tomb or a body that could have been produced, he's talking about Jesus. If, there's, if, if this um, resurrection stuff is just all metaphor, right? Jesus is still in the tomb in the first century. He says, uh, the persecutor Saul would have never become the Apostle Paul. He's saying, like, look, if there was no resurrection, if this was just some kind of metaphorical New Age nonsense, why on earth would Paul have claimed the claims that he made? Why on earth would he be willing to give his entire life for it multiple times over? Like, why in the world is he living in relative poverty? You know, he saw the risen Christ. He received the gospel from him. That's why. He describes himself here as an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's what, that's what transformation occurred. Okay, what's meant by this phrase? Well, The way that Paul means it here is that here we have someone who's not only one of the witnesses of the resurrection, but someone to whom Christ himself has delegated with his authority to preach the gospel that was declared to Paul, right? So even though the term apostle, you know, you'll sometimes hear it used in various church ministries today. Someone will say, oh, it's an apostolic church, an apostolic ministry, an apostolic office, there are no apostolic offices the way that Paul means it here. That's to confuse the issue. There are no apostles today the way that Paul means it here. He is one who writes these words as being 
carried along by the Holy Spirit to declare the very word of God to people, right? He wants the readers to know that this is not his message. It's not his. Like, he received it. He didn't arrive at it over time after processing it for a while, right? He received it. It's not his. He's, this is the message of the king, and Paul's just a herald of that message. It's very similar to what we talked about with John in Revelation, right? Okay, so we see this um, reinforced in the next phrase. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. We're going to see this phrase, by the will of God, three more times before we get through the first chapter. And, the, and, and so we see, I think, one of the reasons Paul uses that phrase here is he wants to get us ready for the rest of the chapter to understand what's going on in terms of the grace of God. Because Paul wants his readers to get this, like, he didn't appoint himself apostle. That's impossible, right? Like, he can't just say, I'm an apostle. That's who I am. You got to listen to me. No, God chose Paul. God chose him. You know, and, and so these words, by the will of God, get us ready to hear more about God's sovereign choice, his grace, his mercy, in choosing people out by grace. Like, did Paul deserve for God to choose him? You know, when you hear Paul's story, did he, did he, did he deserve this? Was it some kind of merit that he earned? No, quite the opposite, actually. He deserved it for God to smite him for standing in the way of the gospel, for actually setting himself as an enemy to God, to, for, for killing and murdering Christians, right? He deserved judgment. He deserved to be wiped off the face of the planet, but that wasn't God's will. That wasn't the will of God. It was according to the will of God to instead choose Paul to declare the gospel for the rest of his life, and we're going to come back to that. Okay, so that's who wrote it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, but where? Now, where is he directing the letter? Look at the second half of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, there's, um, there's a bit to unpack that we're not going to have time to talk about. But, but I'll just say, probably, probably when Paul writes this to the saints in Ephesus, we're looking more at a general geographical location than a specific church. A region rather than a specific church. I think it's probably the case given the content of the book, the lack of personal details, the lack of a very specific or a specific issue that's going on in this church, I think it's likely the case that this is a general letter sent to many Gentile believers in that region of Southwest Asia Minor. Ephesians um, might be the home base from which the letter is sent to these churches. We don't know. We just don't have the kind of personal writing from Paul that he, that he gives when he's addressing a specific church like Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Colossians, right? Like when you read through First and Second Corinthians, there's no question. He's addressing a very specific and unique situation, and that's just not how this reads, okay? So Ephesians is different from the, in that the content's more general rather than the specific. The purpose is more wide in terms of the geography, and part of the reason that it's helpful to note that up front, one of the reasons I note that up front, is because, like, I want to help us interpret our Bible as well. And sometimes, as, sometimes as Christians, we just kind of believe what we hear about various parts of Scripture, and there can be these clever ways of like, I unearthed some historical fact about first century Ephesus. So do you know that in first century Ephesus, there was this wall with this gate, with this riding, with these camels. And now all of a sudden, like there's this backstory that if you don't get that very specific backstory, now it sheds light on this text. And like sometimes that, that I mean, like certainly an understanding of history helps us. But oftentimes when you hear that kind of teaching, your spidey senses should be tingling. Um, at that point, you know, there should be just kind of like, you know how when you read something wacky online, you know, Snopes.com, it's kind of how we should approach this to a degree. Um, I'm, I only say that to say, it seems clear that won't be of much value. A historical study of first century Ephesus, you know, is not going to be as much value to us as just the straightforward teaching of Ephesians. So Ephesians is written then to the saints in this region. Saints is just another word for Christians. That's what it means. Like, sometimes we hear saints, we're, con you know, we connect it to these, like, these really holy people. Like, someone who performed miracles or some kind of super Christian. But when the New Testament uses the word, and definitely when Paul uses the word, but throughout the New Testament, he's talking about Christians. It's a normal, everyday description of Christians. And you might say, but wait a minute, look at the next phrase. It looks like more than that. And Paul actually must be writing to a specific church because he notes 
This, this church is faithful in Christ Jesus. So they are kind of super Christian. They're faithful in Christ Jesus. It's a specific group of people. And that's right. He is writing to a specific group of people. You do see it in that phrase. He's writing to Christians. This is Paul's normal, again, his normal description of Christians. In other words, this is a letter written to the church, believers in Jesus, to those who claim faith in Christ. And there is no such thing, thing as we'll see together as a believer who, who has received the gospel of grace, but just lives like the rest of the world. The New Testament doesn't hold out any hope for that person that they're, they actually are in Jesus Christ. Right? The phrase, unfaithful in Christ Jesus, would have been foreign to Paul. It's oxymoronic. It's like saying married bachelor. You're in Christ Jesus. That is to say, not only do you believe in him, it's not primarily talking about belief. It's talking about union with him. You're joined to him, to the living God. Right? And, and so, not perfectly, but you begin to look more and more like him. Over time, you grow in his likeness because you're joined to the living God. All right, so um, you're faithful. You can't be unfaithful in him. So Christians aren't, not the way that Paul means it here. So Christians aren't called saints and faithful in Christ in the sense that they're super pious, super holy people. But because of the new relationship they've been brought into by God, God's done something for them. You know, like it's not because of what they've done. It's because of what Christ has done. Because of, of the work of God. And we'll see more of that this morning and then in the weeks ahead. And, and you'll see what I mean. So who? Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, wrote the letter. Where? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, but what? What is Ephesians? What is it? Verse 2. Grace to you. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Ephesians is. Listen, listen. The introductions, first century letters, I've taught through epistles before, so I won't belabor the point. Just a threefold pattern. The author introduces himself. The author says who he's writing to. And then the author pens a greeting. And all the greetings are slightly different depending on the occasion of the letter, depending on who he's writing the letter to. But there's one part of the greeting that's the same that, he's, that, that Paul uses in every single letter. And it's actually right here. Some form of this... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ appears in every single one of Paul's letters. Every single one in what he's writing. Why? Because this is, this is what Ephesians is. Like Paul's writing by the Spirit of God to dispense the very words of God, to declare the very words of God to people so that his Spirit, God's Spirit, would work through his word to like make truth known to us, to proclaim or declare the grace and peace of the gospel, the good news at the heart of the Bible, into the human heart. Like, this is why the people say, people say, preaching doesn't make disciples. And that's utter nonsense. People need to stop saying it. It's not the way that the Apostle Paul talks about discipleship. They say preaching doesn't make disciples. Listen, here, here is why the proclaimed word is the center of discipleship. I note this at the beginning of all Paul's letters. This is why I do that. Paul's letters all begin some form of grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. And they all end with some form of grace be with you. So when you get to the end of chapter 6, you'll see him say grace be with you. So grace to you, grace be with you, right? Um, so, so here's what would happen. Let's put this in a historical context. First century. Believers gather on the Lord's day. Right? They gather to hear, sit under, hear collectively together God's word, to sing God's word, to pray God's word. So they're in need of God's word. So the scroll of this letter, other letters from Paul, other letters from the apostles, or even more commonly, the Hebrew scriptures would be unrolled. First century, right? Read taught to the gathered people of God with the recognition that skeptics, non-believers, those who might be curious about the teachings of Christianity would also be there. Like Paul, Paul assumes that when he writes to the Corinthians, that there would be non-believers in your midst. Why? Because they invite their friends and family to come hear these words, the very words of God. The Spirit of God then is active in that. Like the primary way the Spirit of God works, God's Spirit works, is to, is to work through the Word of God so that it can be understood, so we can understand it, so that we could see the gospel, so that we could believe the grace of the gospel as it's being taught. Then the scroll is rolled up, and that grace then goes with 
God's people as they scatter throughout the week. Certainly they speak those words to one another over meals. They challenge one another with it. They exhort, they rebuke, they encourage one another with it. But it also is extended evangelistically. They speak, it changes the way they live, right? This was New Testament discipleship, and we'll see further evidence of that in the next two verses. It's not all that there is, but listen, um, this is the fulcrum. The point is simply to say that because what Paul is writing is the very word of God, he's also dispensing the very grace of God to his people that they might hear and believe. Okay? So we have more to say about this. I'm getting a little ahead of myself with the so that they might hear and believe, but that gets us to why. Why? Like, what's the occasion? Why is Paul writing this? Like, if Ephesians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, these are all the very word of God to the people of God. They all work in this way. Why specifically Ephesians? Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins with this word of praise. The purpose or occasion of this book, what's he praising? Who God is and what he's done. Like the purpose or occasion of this book is to declare who God is and what he's done and why that actually matters. And it matters a great deal. It matters a it's, it's crucial. It's a letter primarily about God and his work. So Paul begins by praising who God is and what he's done. Who is he? He's blessed. He is to be praised. He's to be seen as righteous and holy and good. But because of this, he can bless us. Right? Like, he can declare us blessed because he's blessed. How? By pouring out by his spirit every spiritual blessing that he possesses in the heavenly places. In other words, he is the only means by which we might be made right. I'm not able to bless other people like this because I do, you know... The nature of Jeremy Deck doesn't possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, right? Spiritual blessings in the heavenlies is Paul's shorthand for everything that Christians can now receive because of what God has done in Jesus. That is to say God, who has always been blessed. Like, think of it this way. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we taught through the Evangelical Free Church of America Statement of Faith, Articles 1 and 2. We talked about the Trinity, you know. And so God is Trinity, who is God? He's Trinity. He's always been blessed, praised from within himself. Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And as three persons, a God of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he possessed perfect love from within himself. He did not need to come to humanity in order to be praised, in order to like receive praise. He didn't need humanity to receive praise. He's had praise from within the Godhead, rejoicing because of who he is from within the Godhead, blessing this from within the Godhead from all eternity past. The Father, blessing, praising the Spirit and the Son. The Spirit, blessing the, the, the Father and the Son. The Son, blessing the, the Spirit and the Father. Love, it, eternal love from eternity past in the, from within the Godhead. So he could have simply remained in the heavenlies and condemned the world, condemned the creation, wiped, wiped it out entirely. But instead, he entered the world in order to, to give, give the world what, what he already possessed. To bless it with every spiritual blessing that he possesses in the heavenlies. What spiritual blessings? Why do they matter? Like, what are they? Well, that's, so this is why Paul writes, to make that known. This, this is why he writes. It's the purpose or, or, or occasion of the letter. He's writing probably to a number of predominantly Gentile churches, those who are not Jewish, those who... Now we're hearing this gospel, right, for the first time. He's writing to them that they might see what Christ has done for them and how that actually shapes their lives. The basis for, for um, this good news that he writes. So that leads us to the final question. So Paul's who writes, Paul, Paul writes, where he writes predominantly Gentile churches in this region. Why he writes this specific letter to declare who God is, what he's done, that we might believe and obey. Okay, okay. Uh, so, oh, what he writes is the very word of God to them, but how? How? Like, okay, so when we get to the second half of Ephesians, we're going to come face to face with a series of commands for the Christian life. And you know, the commands aren't easy. They're not easy. So, like, how are we to obey this that, we, that, that we're going to read about? How does, God, how does who God is and what he's done for us actually transform people? Like how does that work? How? 
How can we grow as Christians? These are fundamentally questions about discipleship. Like, what does discipleship look like in the church? What does it look like to follow after Jesus? What does it look like for the church to help one another follow after Jesus? Right? Discipleship questions. And we see them answered in verse 4 and then throughout the rest of the book. Okay, so this, verse 4, it is Paul's summary statement for the entire book. He mentions me in all of his sermons, so, okay. You know, sometimes I text Justin an article. And he responds back with four letters. T-L-D-R. Right? Too long, didn't read. And then he'll follow that up with a quick text. Give that to me in a one-sentence summary, you know. Uh, it's good. That's helpful, I, I suppose, right? So um, it helps me clarify what I, what I think about something. So let's assume the Apostle Paul texted Justin an article of Ephesians. And Justin shoots back, T-L-D-R. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Justin shoots back saying, he says, no, he doesn't say TLDR. He just says, Paul, give me your one-sentence summary of that bad boy. Verse 4. This is one-sentence summary of, of the letter. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, so okay, the first part of verse 4 we'll begin to explain, explain and see more fully next week and through the first three chapters, but it's Paul's shorthand for the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for us. God created us to love him, to obey him, to live as his people in his good place, under his good rule. We decided that we knew better than God about how to be God, so we attempted to dethrone him. We, attempted, we talk about this a lot at GLC because it's so important to know our story. We, we de-godded God. We put ourselves and other things on the throne. We rebelled against the good king. We stood against him. We deserved a traitor's death. And you know what? The apostle Paul, who writes this letter, is a perfect first-hand now example of that story. That is our story. He stood against God as his enemy, persecuted the church of God, uh, hated the gospel. He deserved judgment. We deserved judgment. Our foolish hearts were darkened. And, and, and then we compiled sin on top of sin upon, on top of sin. So we deserved to be wiped out. But before the foundation of the world, before God created the world from eternity past, God had already decreed the means of our salvation. He decreed his divine plan to save us rather than to destroy us. That he would come in the person of Christ to take our penalty of judgment upon himself. That now we might trust in his work rather than our work. We might... We might have his blessedness instead of trying to conjure up some kind of blessedness of our own. Right? We might, we might seek out God's will rather than our will. God, trust in God's word rather than our word by faith in what he's done. And he chose us. He snatched us out of this horrible life of sin and death and actually brought us into a new relationship with himself. Joined us together with himself through the work of Jesus Christ. Again, we're, we're going to unpack more of what this means in the next few weeks, but that's because the first half of verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's what Paul covers now in, in chapters 1 through 3. Like, you know, I talked about this already, but as I read through Ephesians multiple times, I found one verb, one verb in chapters 1 through 3 that was about what, what we need to do, and we'll get there. Everything else, so that's called an imperative. It's called a command. Okay, so there's one imperative, one command that we need to follow in chapters 1 to 3. All of the other verbs that Paul uses really are in the indicative. That means, not imperative, they're indicative. That means they're about what has already been done for us. They're about what's already been done on our behalf. And, and that means that everything that we do in this book flows out of, everything that we're commanded to do flows out of what God's already done. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world, chapters 1 through 3, that we should be holy and blameless before him, which then becomes his focus in chapters 4 through 6. Like, all the things that we're commanded to do flow out of, they come out, they find their source, they find their power in what Jesus has already done. Not in your, you know, your ability to, to you know, work really hard to, do the, to be a good Christian, right? They flow out of what's been done for you. They flow out of good news, not good advice to you. Paul is interested in demonstrating, in other words, that Christianity isn't some collection of rules to follow or not to follow, primarily. You know, 
The commands that we find in Scripture aren't grounded in this law that we must follow in order to be blessed, that we are blessed and therefore we follow. You know, um, it's pretty much the way that every other world religion operates, that you follow the religion in order to be blessed. Even the way that we talk about discipleship in Western evangelicalism is like, well, yeah, the grace of the gospel saves you, but then in order to be blessed, you have to work really hard, follow along, get all these fruits, get all these spiritual disciplines down, you know. Um, but no, like, like, when we get to chapters four through six, we come to find that, like, this is less of a collection of rules to follow and not follow. It is that, like, we do have to follow these rules. They are commands to us to follow. They're binding for the Christian. But it's, it's really less a, a rigid uh, collection of rules, and it's more a description of what it looks like when someone actually believes the grace of the gospel and is therefore f- actually found in Christ Jesus. You'll be faithful in Christ Jesus. You'll continue to grow in Christ Jesus. Right? Um, so, throughout the New Testament, when Paul is dealing with any kind of discipleship issue in which he needs to instruct believers in what it looks like to follow Christ. In various circumstances, you know, like whether it's living in close quarters with non-believing people around us, living in this world, like remember uh, he writes uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. These saints have two locations. One is the city of God and one is the city of man. They're in Ephesus. They're in the world, but they're in Christ Jesus. So how do we live in in the world, but not of the world. So that's one issue that he speaks into. Or being married. How do we live as a married person? Or being single. How do we live as a Christian, as a single person? How, how do we parent? How, how can we be a child under the authority of parents? How, how can we deal with conflict from within the life of the local church? How do we deal with various painful difficulties and circumstances. Every single time for Paul, the way he disciples them is not to just lay on more rules, layer on more rules, get back to the imperative. What's wrong with you? Follow this, you know. But actually to bring us back to the gospel. Every single time. That's how he deals with this issue, is to point them back to the gospel. Because if we truly understand and believe That this has been the nature of our reality. That once this is who we were, but now through Christ it's like this. If we truly believe this, if we're truly found in Christ, then we will move increasingly toward living holy and blameless lives before him. Our lives will be changed. Our hearts will be transformed. How? By applying the gospel to all of life. This is why our our definition of disciple making at Gospel Life Church is our mission statement. How do, we, how do we define discipleship at GLC? It's our mission statement. Rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city's good. Rooting all of life in the gospel, every aspect of life in the gospel of Christ, shaking out the implications of the gospel for every area of life, for his glory, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the good of people, for the good of people whom he blessed Right? Whom he blessed in, in the heavenlies. So, throughout the New Testament we see this. Chapters 1 through 3, though, in Ephesians, are, are about this big glorious gospel of grace. What God has done for us. All these spiritual blessings that we've received through the gospel. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, very powerfully, therefore. Therefore, on the basis of this gospel, this is how you should live Therefore, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that I've just described to you, of the gospel that I've just told you. And that's why discipleship at Gospel Life Church looks the way that it looks. If you want to, if you grabbed one of these scripture journals, you also find inside what we call our disciple-making pathway at Gospel Life Church, right? So I ask you to take this out, take a look at it. Typically, so like in, in churches in the U.S., there's like... Um, it's pretty common to talk about pathways, disciple-making pathways. I think typically, though, what, what you find when you look at a disciple-making pathway in the context of the church is, is a continuum. A discipleship pathway often places people on a continuum between, like, new believer and mature believer, or, like, baby believer, infant believer, and uh, adult mature believer, whatever, right? So there's this continuum. And then the way that you track the growth or maturity of a Christian typically is like, okay, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. It's either like bases or chairs or whatever. Like 
There's various ways that you can move yourself up the pathway. But how do you track it? Typically, it's through the acquisition of spiritual disciplines. Like, he goes to church now more, or this person reads his Bible more regularly. You know, we're checking things off the list to see, like, okay, they're moving from stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. Now, the, the first stage, believe the gospel, repent and believe. But then every other stage, there's kind of this, like, expectation of, of continuum that, that, that the believers are on. Rather than that, what we see is, and friends, if my, if my reading of Ephesians is, is correct, the New Testament, and even like all the scripture pointing to Christ, I do not believe that this is the way that the Bible talks about discipleship. So rather than a pathway that puts us on a continuum to maturity by way of our acquisition of fruit, we desire to create a pathway of the gospel into the, into the heart. The good news of Jesus into the human heart repeatedly, repeatedly. Every stage of it is repent and believe the gospel. Because everything that we deal with is repentably the gospel. So, so okay, um, let's look at this real quickly. Three, the three stages of our, of our, what we call gospel reverberation. This comes from Jonathan Lehman's book, Reverberation. If you ever, um, not, not the words that we use in the paragraphs, but just the title and the understanding of some of this. Like, pick up Lehman's book. But, but here's what the gospel rhythms look like. First, we have gospel proclaimed. If you look at the front side with me. The word of God recenters our worship on the truth of who God is and what he's done. What do we mean by that? Well, turn to the back end. So people say preaching doesn't make disciples. Listen, listen. Um, and, and many thanks to the elders who helped write these words, Paul Burr, specifically Matthew Holmes, whom I sat across in a staff meeting as he was talking one day. I was like, oh, yep, keep going. You want to go back say that again? Um, just transcripting Matthew. Okay, throughout the week, we are bombarded by voices competing for our greatest loves. That's true, right? Like Facebook, uh, social media, certainly media in general, news, conservative news, liberal news media. Where, man, these things catechize you. They do. They, you know what catechism is? It's just this repetition of doctrine that changes the way you think about things, changes the way you respond about things, changes your behavior, the way that you react. Every week, you, whether you know it or not, you have catechism. You have liturgy. You have this thing that keeps bombarding you with its own version of reality. And it's hard, man, to, to not get caught up in that, right? So those voices are competing for your greatest love. So what do we need? That was exactly what the early church needed. Exactly what we talked about. Exactly what we saw on the Lord's Day. The Word of God recenters our worship on the truth of who God is and what he's done. When the church gathers, the word is read and explained. We sing, recite, and pray the word together. The spirit works through the word so that the gospel is believed. We believe the gospel as it's being read, as it's being preached. Okay, so this is gospel proclaimed. The first thing that a church needs in order to be a church, someone needs to open the Bible and read it, and then someone needs to explain it so that we know what is the word of God, you know. Um, this isn't just a competing, you know, if you go to a church, if, if, if we go to Sunday mornings and on Sunday mornings we decide Jeremy's just going to share my opinion about stuff, then I'm just another one of the talking heads. I'm another one of the competing voices. But God's voice isn't a competing voice. It's the voice. It's the truth, right? So the word of God recenters our, recenters our worship on truth. Gospel proclaimed. Then gospel echoed, right? It doesn't stop there. I'm not saying when I say that preaching makes disciples, I'm not saying that's all, that's all we need, right? So Throughout the week, we remind one another, gospel echoed. Look what happens in the life of the church. Throughout the week, we remind one another of the gospel. Help one another to apply it to all of life. So you see the figures there in that middle section echoing that gospel back and forth. If you, if you flip back to the back page again, while Sunday morning is primary for discipleship, we are forgetful creatures. We require gospel repetition throughout the week. So we gather in smaller contexts, community groups, one-to-one -one discipleship, men and women's groups. We don't have these things at GLC just so that we have like program options for us to be a part of. Like, it's nice to have a church with the, where there's program options. No, like that's not the, the point. We're not a club. Uh, the purpose of this is to remind one another of the gospel, help one another apply it to all of life, to echo that gospel back and forth to one another. So I encourage you, get into a community group. Get into a one-to-one -on, one -one discipleship group. Find somebody and echo this gospel back and forth. Go to Norm's men's Bible study. Go to the women's group. I think there's a... There's a, there's a thing this Saturday? A thing, a brunch? Okay, talk to somebody about that, uh, Amanda Weavers. All right, 
So gospel echoed, but find a place to go and go and hear that gospel echoed to one another's hearts. Gospel extended then, thirdly, it doesn't stop there either because flip to the front page, as we experience the joy of the gospel transforming our lives, our burden grows to share, share that joy with others. Like God is blessed. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And now we can bless others through the proclamation of that gospel to the world around us, to the way in which we live, right? So, so, so you see in that circle, relationships, our home life, the, you know, our education, the way we spend our money. So look at the, the back end, gospel extended. The, the word shapes us to then now combat and defeat the competing voices throughout the week more effectively. The gospel changes how we spend our money, engage in our relationships, and do our work. As we experience the joy of this gospel transforming our lives, our burden grows to share it with others so that they can know this joy as well. It's a pathway of the gospel to the human heart, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus Christ for his glory, for for the good of people. This is discipleship. And one of the ways, it's it's the proclamation of the gospel. One of the ways we proclaim the gospel to each other each week, it's, it's why we prioritize the Lord's table weekly. Because here we have a drama. Here we have like a living parable of the gospel, where we come together and proclaim to one another. The body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was shed for us that, that our blood and body wouldn't be broken and our body wouldn't be broken, our blood wouldn't be shed. Right? He, he stood in our place. But not only that, but he now, he, he, he's in us. We're, we're joined to him. We're in union with him, right? Uh, there's a joining. So, so this is a proclamation of the gospel that we're gonna be looking at throughout the rest of Ephesians, and that means if you're a believer, this, this is for you. If you're a believer, if you, if you say, yes, this gospel of grace of Jesus Christ is true. This is what I believe. I'm a, I'm, I am in Christ. This, this is for you to proclaim that to others. If you're not a believer, if you're a skeptic this morning, we invite you to participate. But participate by asking questions, observing. Come to the Q&A afterwards. Come to, certainly come to, you know, uh, unfiltered conversation at Headflyer this Thursday night and just hang out with us or ask any questions you might have. But um, I invite you this morning to come forward, take of these elements back to your seats with you and we'll partake of them together.